one of the things that happened for me in, in Aspen, and I don't regret one minute of it, of that, uh, I, I spent 11 years there, uh, or 12 years, uh, I realized I got caught up in the image of being a rich guy in Aspen. Uh, you know, of being able to fly around on, on a private jet and live in the big house and, you know, belong to the, belong to the most exclusive clubs and all that stuff. And I, I never realized how I had become captured by the image. And, you know, there's a Zen expression, Zen Buddhist expression that fish do not describe water very well. Yeah. You know, that whatever we're living in, yeah. We justify it, we make up a story about it, and we're largely unaware of it. Success in life is not for those who run fast, but for those who keep running and always on the move. Today's guest dropped out of college after the first semester as a result of suffering the first of three heart attacks then went on and found and led two high-impact experiential learning companies with over 1 million graduates, retired at age 46 to a 14,500 square foot home in Aspen, Colorado, with his wife, the love of his life, then lost it all. Robert White will be sharing with us today how he had come from a background of poverty to extreme affluence, lost it all and still making it. Hello, Robert. And welcome to that, podcast uh, with Sheila. <laughs> Thank you, Sheila. That's uh, quite a summary. I, I, when I hear it, I when I hear it, I could get alternately depressed and excited. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm excited. I'm so so excited um, to have you on today's um, episode. I read your bio, and I was thinking, no, oh, you'd have you have um, wealth of experience to share you know, with us. You know, they normally, those, some of those things, especially the, the failures, do not show up in my regular bio, but you ask for the truth. Yeah. Uh, and particularly for a, a story about yeah. surviving that kind yeah. of uh, blow in life. And I, I do have that story and I, I wouldn't want to repeat it, right. but I also treasure it Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of what I learned about myself, about others about the world and uh, and also I found it to be useful in dealing with my uh, executive clients. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sheila, something that happened for me over the last few years is I, I figured out that uh, my six years in China involved being in front of about 20,000 people, um, executives and companies yeah. there. And I, because of some things that are happening in my life, I started asking them uh, two questions, sometimes only one of them, but most of the time twice. I would wait until I had some trust built up. And then I would ask these two questions. The first one was, uh, how many of you have been betrayed, uh, either personally or, or in your business? And the answer is 100%. I mean, people, people were willing to put their hand up yeah. in public, yeah. and admit that yeah. they they were betrayed yeah. and and you know betrayal includes with it a lot of opportunities for, for some pretty strong feelings including yeah. uh anger yeah. certainly yeah. uh and the other question was how many of you are estranged from at least one member of your family 
where you you don't talk or if you do talk it's in very short sentences yeah. you know that kind of thing yeah and that 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 answer by the way is 70 percent so even though i'm working with people who generally hire me because they'd like to make more money they'd like their business to be more effective they'd like their team to function uh, more honestly and more in a more focused aligned and committed way yet they have stuffed primarily these really horrible experiences of betrayal and estrangement and uh they think well okay i've compartmentalized that I i'm busy i'm focused i can't let that get in the way of my success but it's still there you know it's like carrying you know my metaphor it's like yeah. carrying around a, a 50 yeah. pound sack of yeah. rocks on your back mm. you know so yeah. uh what i've learned is that these challenging aspects of my own life these events have equipped me to understand my clients better uh, first of all to understand myself better and how i react but then secondly, how I can be of service to others. I like where the direction of the conversation started from. And I'm going to ask this is a personal question because I want to know, I want answers for myself. So how do you deal with a situation where you've, you feel hurt, like you trusted somebody and then you feel very hurt? But the thing for me is how I view life is life can be difficult based on your choices. So when I find myself in a very difficult situation, what I do is the things I can deal with, I deal with them. And the things I cannot deal with them, I just go through it. So when I find my, myself in a place of hurt, where I trusted somebody to be there for me and the person wasn't, what I do is I shut them out yeah. completely. I ignore you. I can't have anything to do with you, not even a a simple good morning or afternoon. I don't want to do that. I treat you as non-existent because for me, my mental health, that helps me a lot. So you don't exist to me, so I don't get to think about the issue. But I don't know if that is the best thing to do because I found myself lately having to do that a number of times. Hmm. Well, you know, short term, that works. Uh, my experience is long-term, it does not. Uh, you know, I went through a really horrible divorce that I didn't want. Uh, one of my friends described it, frankly, as the divorce from hell. Uh, the love of my life uh, left me for a lawyer and there was three years of acrimony and lawsuits and all the, every bad thing you can think of. I ended up on the front page of our local newspaper Oh. Uh, accused of sexually molesting my own daughters uh, because that was the latest strategy in American divorces at that time. Oh. And uh, so I, I was really angry. I was really sad. I was confused. Uh, I was fearful, uh, particularly of uh, my children's health, mental health. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I had an eight-year-old daughter who went back to wetting the bed. Uh, I had a six-year-old daughter who did not speak for one year uh you know I mean, bad things were happening and a friend of mine actually a former employee of mine who's a really talented personal coach reached out to me and offered his services free and so i i started getting on the phone with him a couple of times a week 
And we went for about six weeks where he didn't say anything. I mean, he would do the reinforce, okay. you know, reinforcements of, uh-huh, mm, okay. oh. I understand. Mm -hmm. But he didn't say anything. And it was starting to frustrate me. Yeah. And then one, one day and six weeks into this, uh, his name is Stuart. And Stuart said, uh, Robert, could I give you some feedback and ask you a question? And I said, sure. You know, I was excited. Finally, this yeah. very talented, actually kind of famous guy is offering finally to give me a solution. And he did in the form of a question. And the question was this. He said, wouldn't it be useful to take 100% personal responsibility for all of this? Now, I was in this place. And now, first of all, I got into this training business because I went to a seminar where I learned about personal responsibility. And that changed my entire life at that time. Yeah. I wrote a book about it. My book, Living an Extraordinary Life, is primarily about choices and about taking personal responsibility. And yet, I was being a victim in the matter of the divorce. Now, I had a good story about it. I mean, horrible, horrible things were being done to me and my children. Uh, but I wasn't taking responsibility for it. And the key, I, I thought about this later, the key in his question was, wouldn't it be useful? He, he didn't talk about right or wrong. He didn't talk about religion or spirit or, or some personal development book. Yeah. He just said, wouldn't it be useful to take 100% personal responsibility for this? And when I started looking at it, I realized that I was a player in all of this. I made choices that set this up. Yeah. They were subtle. There were things I did not want to look at, frankly, which is why I wasn't looking at them. Yeah. And that started the long, slow process, first of all, of just owning the entire situation and starting to look again at my choices for the future. And I think that the problem with walling people off is like, in my case, uh, and, uh, you know, I had this beautiful home in Aspen. I had a beautiful deck outside my office. I went out there one day after kind of looking at all of this, and I, I just sat and looked at the beautiful uh, valley that, I, that we lived in yeah. for three and a half hours. And what came out of that for me was that I teach these things about vision, about creating a compelling picture of a future state, the way you want your life to be. And what I realized is that the number one thing for me were these little kids. And that if I was, if I'm more committed to me and my story and my victim role, those kids are going to continue to suffer. And that I, what I have learned is that uh, the daughter, that daughters of divorce do not fare well. There's a lot of studies about this. They have higher rates of eating disorders. They have premature sexuality and promiscuity. They have academic failure, a, a lot of bad things. Somehow a divorce at those ages bothers young girls more than young boys in, in a market sense. I mean, a big, there's a big distinction. And I was seeing that with my daughters. And I realized that if I'm teaching this stuff about a compelling vision, yeah. I better live it. And my vision is, oh, and I found out that the only solution to that is not therapy. It is a to develop an effective co-parenting relationship 
with the with my former wife. Yeah. Now I had all kinds of evidence that that was impossible, but then I thought, if I'm teaching this stuff, I need to live it. And and so I set the goal of creating an effective co-parenting relationship. Now, to my ex-wife's credit, she eventually stepped into that vision and mostly has done a good job at being a good co-parent. And we have these incredible children to show for it. But uh, the key was to first take personal responsibility, you know, to really wake up and realize I can own this all. And then what's my positive vision for my relationship with this woman in service to my children? Now, that mean, I didn't forget all the horrible things that she and the lawyer boyfriend did to me but and to the kids. But I, uh, at one level, forgave her. I can be in her presence without being reactive. And our children have benefited. And so my experience is that short term, it's pretty good to get away from anything that's dangerous and yeah. might hurt you. Yeah. and get some distance. Yeah. But after that, I think it's pretty important to create the total context and your role in it. Uh, you know, we can't, an example is we can't be responsible for world hunger. It's too big a thing for us to take yeah. responsibility for, and it's other people. Yeah. You can only be responsible to hunger, not for it. Uh, but you can be responsible for your reaction to it. And, you know, it's dangerous to use the example of COVID right now. Yeah. But, you know, you, you're not responsible for COVID. Uh, it's there. But you can be responsible about your response to it. Or are you going to live in fear of it? And I know people that are living in fear of it. And that's encouraged by governments. That's encouraged by the media. Uh, it's not a responsible position. Yeah. Because if you're in fear, you're not in love. I mean, I, I don't want to get overly yeah. modeling here, but uh, fear and love are on opposite ends of the continuum. Uh, so <laughs> if, if you've got a whole society living in fear, that's a big problem. Uh, yeah. But being responsible for your own life and responsible to others and to situations, it's a small distinction. It is super powerful. Wow, this is eye-opening. But I want us to get into the story proper. I don't want to take it too much from the top, but somewhere in the middle. So I hear at age 17, you had more money than your dad because you had started your business when you were 14 years old. That's yes. true. Great. So how did that make you feel? Making uh, uh, money that early? Uh, it well, and it included being on the radio and having a, a, a top 40 DJ show, music show. So it gave me uh, approval from my peers. I became very popular in my school and actually was named most likely to succeed and, you know, selected for all kinds of honors, commencement speaker, all of those kinds of things. And I was operating from this position of I am not enough. You know, I'm, I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. Lot of, and, and uh, you know, part of that's being raised in poverty. Part of it's being raised 
by a violence, violence and uh, critical mother. You know, we had 300 students in the graduating class that same year when I was 17. And I graduated number six. Cool. Uh, pretty good, huh? Yeah. I called my mom. I said, uh, hey, mom, I'm, I'm number six. She said, why aren't you number one? I, I mean, do that, that to my children all the time. <laughs> <laughs> they told me, Mom, today I had nine over ten. I said, why didn't you get ten over ten? Yeah. Well, you're doing a lot of damage, Sheila. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put you in jail. Uh, <laughs> parenting jail. Uh, and by the way, I've done exactly the same thing with my children. And then <laughs> I most of the time I catch myself because I can hear that echo of my mother, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh uh, but what being on the radio, having that success, making that money acted against that feeling of I'm not enough. It was the first signal to me that, hey, you know, maybe I've got a few things going for me. Now, it took a lot of lot more years to get past and realize I am enough with all of my flaws, with all of my I'm still not very disciplined. <laughs> and uh, uh, but. Uh, it was so helpful just to get the approval of my schoolmates, you know, to, yeah. to be, to be somebody that other people sought me out, you know, for, for friendships. And uh, so it was, it was meaningful at the time. Wow. Wow. I also read that you have two successful publications and then all the proceeds from those publications went into charitable work. Well, the, the, the two books, uh, the first one, One World, One People, was an expression of our vision of what we want to create through the trainings that we do and the coaching that we do. Uh, the second one, the sequel, came because people noticed that there were only a couple of pictures in the One World, One People book of children. So we created this book, One World, One Child. Uh, in the meantime, my former wife and I had adopted two special needs children. Uh, who had been horribly abused before we adopted them. So we were caught up in the, how do you heal? How do you treat a child who has, in, in one case, not just abused, but was tortured? Uh, the other one was born addicted to crack, uh, cocaine, and had uh, permanent brain damage and a lot of behavioral problems. So in learning how to parent those children, we found out how big the issue is. And so we were able to raise a lot of money by donating the proceeds from the book sales uh, to those charities. Uh, right here in Denver, Colorado, is the Kemp Center for, for the Treatment and Prevention of Child Abuse. And uh, they do marvelous work in research and also in treatment. And uh, it's like a headquarters for therapists that are going to be dealing with these badly damaged, uh, traumatized yeah. children. So supporting them. And then uh, both of our children are adopted. We adopted them independently through family connections. But there is a, a, an adoption agency in the Western US called the Adoption Exchange. They were so helpful because legally it's a thicket. You know, it's, it's a maze. It, it's really difficult to get. I, I don't know about in England, but in America, they make it very difficult to adopt kids. And uh, uh, the, the Adoption Exchange helped us so much. So 
uh, well, me and some of my friends were able to uh, create donations of over a million dollars to those two wow. organizations. So, and it's been a, you know, it's the small thing I can do. That's commendable because there, there are a lot of people like you who wouldn't like to spend their money towards that direction. So yes. this is brilliant, very brilliant. Um, yesterday, I interviewed one other lady from Uganda who is also helping women, um, underprivileged women, and she's finding it very difficult to raise money for her projects. So to hear you raise um, a million dollars or more for this for a charitable cause is very commendable. So that was my highlight, really. It's going to be my highlight for this episode. But let's talk about your accomplishment and your establishment. I know you don't want us to go too much into the past, but let's talk about your accomplishment, your establishment, the lives you touched, and the companies you've built, all of that, from how you became very affluent and how you lost it. You know, I... I mentioned that uh, I was named most likely to succeed by my classmates. Yeah. Uh, however, I spent the next 10, 10 years making them wrong. Uh, I had uh, an early marriage and divorce. I felt very guilty about that. I had had the three heart attacks and was told I would not live past 35 years old. And my little business was struggling. Uh, there were times when I could not meet the payroll. People had to wait to get paid. Uh, so my life was a mess. And a friend of mine went out to California and went through one of the early human potential movement seminars. And he was in a similar business to mine. He came back and my business continued to just struggle. You know, his took off. Secondly, he had been having trouble in his marriage and suddenly that trouble went away. And then finally, it was really a strange aspect of it. You know, if you're a teenager, you might get acne, you know, the yeah. hormonal yeah. stuff, yeah. Your, your skin gets messy. It's a terrible thing when you're a teenager, but it goes away. Yeah. Uh, there's a different kind of acne and that's, they call it adult onset. And it doesn't go away. Oh. And uh, all of the time that I knew this friend, uh, he struggled with that. And he had all these treatments. He had, it was like, like his face was sanded yeah. and turned bright red yeah. and uh, cortisone injections and all this stuff, nothing worked. And within uh, 30 or 45 days of him doing the seminar, the acne went away. Oh. And it's noticeable, something physical like that. So I looked at and he's telling me I should do this seminar. And I'm saying, no, 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 it's not for me even though my life was a mess. But when I looked at how his marriage was improved, how his face cleared up, and how his business was expanding, I thought, well, okay, I'll go. So I went there with my arms crossed, my probably my legs crossed and my mm -hmm. eyes crossed, negative and cynical, uh, a four-day program. And for three days, I was that negative, cynical person. And on the fourth day, I actually don't know what happened, but my life changed in that moment. And it sounds like a cliche all these years later, but my life really changed. I really got personal responsibility. I really got that I needed to wake up to my reality and the reality of the people around me. And I, got, I woke up to the fact that I was actually pushing people away from me 
while I said I was trying to attract them, <laughs> I was pushing them away. And uh, in the following year, my income tripled, even though not one word was said about money in the entire seminar. Mm. Because I got myself, uh, with a capital S, I got that self out of the way. I got my ego out of the way. And I just started showing up with people authentic, more authentically. Uh, the year after that, it went up 10 times. And uh, suddenly I'm making more money in a month than I ever made in a year. And uh, one of the ways that I did that was to encourage my salespeople and my family and my friends to go to that seminar. I didn't understand the seminar. I didn't know anything about it except that it worked for me and uh, for people around me. And uh, uh, in doing that, I enrolled about 400 people into that seminar. And, and not, I didn't understand it. I didn't know who ran it. I didn't get paid, but I got paid indirectly yeah. because they would sell more or they'd be better friends or yeah. Yeah. there'd be more joy in my life. Yeah. And uh, one day the uh, uh, founder and president of that company telephoned me. I didn't even know his name uh, actually. And uh, he introduced himself and said, thank you, you know, for enrolling all these people into the training. And then he uh, invited me to California. Oh. My first visit and, uh, you know, wonderful trip. And 10 days later, I was president of that company. Oh. <laughs> and I, I didn't know anything about running a training company, but I understood a bit about business, about marketing and selling and yeah. working with people. And so four years, I worked for someone else and incredible growth experience, incredible learning. Uh, he, he, was, he was a great teacher. So he handled the teaching side of the training business and I handled the business. And, and uh, it was a good partnership, it worked well. Uh, some things happened and the ownership of the company changed. It no longer worked for me, so I quit. Okay. And uh, in the meantime, I had opened five foreign subsidiaries of that company, mm. including, by the way, and one in London. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and of all my travel around the world, all those opportunities, I only said no to one country, uh, which turned out to be uh, an irony because uh, that country was Japan. It was mm. It was the most expensive market I had ever looked at to do business. The language is backwards. Yeah. And our training was very dependent on uh, an appropriate use of language. And, uh, and we were busy, you know, we were stretched. So I said, no, uh, Sheila, those people called me once a month for three years saying, please come to Japan, please come to Japan. So as my life changed, that didn't matter to them. They just kept Calling telling you. me what they wanted. Yeah. So while I was with Mind Dynamics, of course, I said no, no, and no. And then when I resigned from Mind Dynamics, I started a company called LifeSpring. Here we are, a startup, you know, just scrambling for the next uh, one more enrollment. Uh, you know, a few dollars more to pay yeah. the expenses. Yeah, yeah. And they're calling me and telling me to come to Japan. Uh, and I kept saying no. 
And then for a variety of reasons, I sold that company to the staff and I sold it to them for nothing down and forever to pay. So I had put all of my money into it. So now I found myself unemployed, broke with a family and a mortgage and, you know, all of those things. And they called me from Japan and they said, we're going to change our request. Come for three months and we'll pay you for one year. Whoa. And, you know, much later, you know, we had a huge success in Japan later. Uh, you know, I ended up staying the first time for 11 years. Yeah. And <laughs> so, and people would say, what was your vision for coming to Japan? Yeah. My vision was to be able to pay my bills. You know, that's all. Yeah. It, it was totally survival based. And I acknowledge that uh, I think God had a much more oh. important purpose for me and I yeah. was living it out, yeah. but I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. And uh, so that company... Uh, uh, those two companies, LifeSpring and Arc International, have a total of 1,300,000 graduates of these high-impact experiential learning events where people get in touch with their authentic self, with who they really are and their purpose for being on the planet, their vision, and also some pretty practical tips on, on how to actualize their vision. And some connection to other people. I mean, lots of good things happen. Yeah. And, uh, but that's what resulted in also in a lot of wealth. We ended up with 240 staff, uh, 70 full-time trainers, uh, 15 offices. We were the second largest training company in the world. So uh, I made more money than I ever imagined. I, you know, I spent six months traveling with the late John Denver. I, uh, uh, I spent a month on safari in Africa. I rafted the Amazon. I, you know, I just did everything. That, and you had a private jet as well. I did have a private jet. It was very nice, very expensive, but very nice. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, the, the divorce and then business failure woke me up to my next steps in terms of my own personal growth and, and, and to make better choices back to that same word that you used earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, So it's been, uh, you know, my book is now a bestseller. uh, People pay me a lot of money to come and speak. So life has turned out well. Yeah. Lots of surprises. So life is good for me. That's true. Brilliant. Let's find out how difficult or easy is it to lose everything you have and try to make it. Yeah, that's the idea of starting over is certainly very real for me. I've done it twice in my life. Uh, one of the things I notice is that it's this distinction between our image or our ego and our authentic self. You know, uh, I realized that one of the things that happened for me in, in Aspen, and I don't regret one minute of it, of that, uh, I, I spent 11 years there, uh, or 12 years, uh, I realized I got caught up in the image of being a rich guy in Aspen. Uh, you know, being able to fly around on, on a private jet and live in the big house and, you know, belong, yeah. to, the, belong to the most exclusive clubs and all that stuff. Yeah. And I, I never realized how I had become captured 
by the image. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a Zen expression, Zen Buddhist expression that fish do not describe water very well. Yeah. You know, that whatever we're living in, yeah. we justify it, we make up a story about it, and we're largely unaware of it, of the image, yeah. that we're living in an image. Yeah. Uh, and one of the ways I realized this is that after the marriage blows up and uh, the company blows up and I lose 30 million US dollars, uh, I, uh, I realized that I needed to start over and Aspen is not a good city for business. Yeah. It's a great city for fun. Well, fun. You know, I skied 80 days a year. I, I uh, had a wide circle of friends. I was on six nonprofit boards. So I moved back to Denver, Colorado. Okay. And, and then I got an invitation. My friend, uh, John Denver, had died. And uh, they started doing a reunion uh, around the, the, the date of his death. Uh, October 12th, and they would do that in Aspen. And many singers, he had a lot of friends from the music industry would come, and then his fans would come, thousands of people would come to celebrate his life and his music. And uh, they invited me, and I didn't go. And what I realized is that it was too painful yeah. to go back to this place where I had created this image and show up in a different way. Yeah. And frankly, in a more humble way. And it took me three or four years before I finally uh, agreed to go. Uh, a good friend of mine and a good friend of John's, John Denver's, uh, was an Australian guy named Terry who put together a film about John Denver's life. And he wanted to interview me on camera. And I couldn't say no. And it was a breakthrough moment for me to go back to Aspen, oh. to this place I actually loved, yeah. and, uh, and deal with that image stuff, to realize that uh, underneath that is I'm still who I am. Yeah. And I needed to recapture that. I apparently needed that lesson of losing all that money and losing yeah. my, my, the love of my life uh, for me to wake up. Uh, so I think that getting trapped in an image, and that image can be a negative one. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, I, that I'm not enough image. Yeah. 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 And pre yeah. prevents you from taking the next step that you know you need to take yeah. in life. Uh, but also, uh, it can be a, a positive image, it can look good on the surface. You know, the clothing, the jewelry, yeah. the yeah. Yeah. trips, you know, all of yeah. that stuff. Uh, but to become aware of it, because only when you're aware of it, can you deal with it? Can you do something with it, yeah. whether negative or positive? Uh, as long as it's subconscious, you know, we'll, fish don't describe water very well. Yeah. <laughs> so it all turned out to be valuable, but the process was at times painful, facing up to mm -hmm. uh, reality for mm -hmm. me. I nearly asked you, but I think you said it in plain words and it's very clear that sometimes to deal with pain, you have to actually visit the pain. Go yes. back, visit it, and then you'll be able to. That makes a lot of sense. You know, our, phys our physical body sends us messages. Mm -hmm. Our feelings send us very strong messages. And when we stuff them or ignore them, we're going to pay the price somewhere down the line. 
Yeah. Do you have any highlight achievements you'd like us to talk about? Look, I have eight children. Eight children. They're out doing well in life. Uh, that's really the highlight achievement. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm proud of my book. I'm writing another one now. Uh, getting a bestseller is not easy. I found easy. out, and uh, so a lot of people saying that they get value from it. That's a highlight for me. Yeah, uh, Sheila. Somehow, I didn't. You know, it might be age related. I'm not sure. But in the last three or four years, um, I'm receiving unsolicited acknowledgement and praise for making a difference in some people's lives or in some companies' lives. And uh, I'm at first, I frankly, I I would deflect if somebody said something nice about my work yeah. and me, I would change the subject or I yeah. make a joke of it. Uh, but I'm slowly coming around to having some uh, peace about that and some pleasure that I'm glad that I've been able to contribute. It doesn't change any of the mistakes that I've made or my negative self-judgments. Yeah. <laughs> They're still there, uh, but it feels really good to have people uh, acknowledge that I've been a positive contribution in their life. Uh, I, for me, for me, I think that is what life is about, how we can make um, a positive impact in people's lives. That is how I've always lived my life, though, making sure, because I want, when, I've, when my years on earth is done and I'm gone, I want people to remember me for what I did. Yes. So when they mention my name, what did she do? And people can stick out their hands and say, she did this to me, she did that to me. And I get it a lot. And for some reason, I believe that sometimes we go through some phases in life for a particular reason. And I've, I think I've said this on this podcast before, and I'm going to say it again, that I was listening to um, Steve Harvey once. And he said, that situation you are going through, God wants a book from it. God probably wants a workshop from it because you're going through it to be able to train more people so don't always feel sad or beat yourself up for the things you go through. It's probably shaping you up for a better reason. And I remember I've said it so many times when I came out of the university, I didn't get a job. It was a difficult time for me. I came out with the best grades. I came out second best in my, in my class. And I remember hey, when, yeah, when I was- smart. Really, You're smarter than me. No, but I, <laughs> I just couldn't. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. How I couldn't get, I couldn't find a job at that time. When people in in my year group who didn't do as good as I did were getting better jobs, and I was getting depressed by the day. It was very depressing. And sometimes they'll come to my house with their new cars. You know, it's as if to tease me. And I remember one time, one of my friends said it in a way to mock me as oh. she came with another friend and she said oh this lady you know she had a first class honor so can you believe it but she's not gotten a job yet you know she said <laughs> and oh. all of that was so depressing at the time and i would think of myself i'll sit down so at a point when they came to my house i'll tell my parents tell them i'm not in 
tell them about <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to see anybody, but I wanted to find deep within myself what I could do, not just for myself, but to impact others. So I had to think of what I had come out from the investing with and what I could do. Then I started training women, so empowering women, underprivileged women to start small businesses of their own. And little did I know this was my area of calling. And I fit smoothly into that pace with no difficulty and the kind of reports people give. Sheila, you're the best. The things you teach me. I had mental health problems. I didn't know craft could help me. You know, and somebody would think it's just craft, but it's making, it's changing lives. And I know people have come to our workshops who couldn't feel their limbs. They couldn't feel their limbs, but after a few months, they're feeling that. So those are the kind of things I would wish when I'm normal, people could be saying, she did this, she did. When I hear them, it's fulfilling, it's not money, but it's very satisfying to know that I've touched a life and somebody is able to carry on. They were in a dark place in their life, but is now able to carry on in their lives because they have children relying on them. And when mommy is depressed, and can't take care of them, it affects everybody. So it's not just the, the mother you're helping, you're helping the whole family, the children, the husband, you're bringing life back into them. Those are the kind of things I am excited to. And I don't think if I had gone to work in all those big companies my friends were working in, I don't think I'll be touching the kind of lives I'm touching now. Well, it wouldn't, it probably would not, uh be your purpose it's not your purpose in life yeah you know there's this wonderful book from i don't know 20 years ago the guy that wrote it has the most unpronounceable last name i've ever seen it, it's it's one of those middle european names that have the long yeah. uh, number of consonants and no vowels yeah. i know his first name is mikhail and the, anybody can find the book it's called flow f-l-o-w okay. and uh it's I mean, I recommend the book, but you know, you can get the idea of flow by just listening to the last couple of minutes of what you shared. You know, once you find your river, your flow. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect and mm -hmm. there won't be any problems. Mm -hmm. But once you find your flow, everything becomes natural. Mm -hmm. Everything becomes, there's a feeling of satisfaction and joy uh, when, that comes out of it. Even with frustration, even with mistakes, even with uh, criticism, of, of, you know, a lot of people will say, "I've said to me, uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you one more mom story before we okay. complete today." Okay. When I I mentioned that after this seminar, I started making a lot of money, and I started making more money in a month than I had made in a year. The first one of those months. And this is back before bank transfers were common, back before the internet, all that. Yeah. The way you got paid was a paper check, a draft, mm. you know, the bank draft. And those checks from the, the sponsoring company that I was working for came in a distinctive envelope. I mean, you knew what they were yeah. before you, before you opened it. Now, I knew I had earned the money, but it's different to receive it. And I, I came into my office one morning and my secretary was smiling from ear to ear. She was so excited because three of those envelopes had arrived. Oh. 
and, uh, uh, and, and some other mail, including a letter from my mother. Uh, the, the relentlessly negative, critical, angry woman. But she's my mother, right? So she's yeah. important. Yeah. She's important yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. And she lived a, a, a distance away. So in those days, the telephone was considered an outrageous expense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people wrote letters. So yeah. she writes, and she wrote me letters regularly, and I would write back. But uh, so I went into my office, and I, I tell this joke in public. Guess which envelope I opened first? Yes. It was not. It was not mom's letter, right? It was the three checks, and I, <laughs> I gathered all my staff together. We had a little meeting room. We went in the meeting room. We opened up at ten o'clock in the morning some cheap champagne. Uh, you know, that terrible kind that leaves you with the terrible headache. And uh, <laughs> but we raised a glass to our success, you know, and, and everybody hugged and it was great. And then I went back to my office and I opened the letter from mom. And I can remember this letter. I, I have a picture of it in my mind, in her handwriting, of course. Yeah. And on the first page was the, was like a form letter in a way, because it's the letter that all moms wrote at that time, I think. Uh, uh, I've been well or I've not been well. The weather is this. Uh, and I heard from your brother and your sister and they're doing this. Okay. That's page one. Yep. <laughs> it was always, the reports were different, but the format was same every the same, time. Yeah. So then I, I can remember, I looked at page two and at the top of page two, it said, have you found a regular job yet? I just made more money in a yeah. month than I ever made in a year. Yeah. I am having so much fun. I mean, it's the fulfillment <laughs> of my dream. I'm working with wonderful people. I'm serving people. Yeah. But I, I, I remember... I don't know if I would call it depressed. I certainly didn't feel good because I felt judged by mom once yeah. again, yeah. you know, yeah. that, but yeah. she was a deep, they call it depression baby. Yeah. She grew up, she grew up when you literally did not have enough food to eat. Yeah. And, and uh, so for her, her belief was that only by getting a job in a big company, can you be successful and mm. be safe. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I just never had that belief. You know, I had always yeah. kind of been an entrepreneur, you know, yeah. from shoveling snow and cutting grass yeah. Yeah. and uh, uh, delivering newspapers. And yeah. from, from 12 years old, I worked, you know, and uh, I just didn't have it. And yet when she said that, it was, a you know, I was, I was really upset, yeah. uh, you know, but when you are in that flow, when you're doing, and, and you know, uh, uh, I'm a, I'm a non-church going Christian, but I believe in God and I believe in Christ's lessons. And I believe that God put us here for a purpose. Yeah. Our, our job is to figure out what it yeah. is. Yeah. And it, it can be as simple as, uh, you know, sweeping the streets it can be a waitress. It can be a, a manufacturing a guy or a woman. Uh, there's a lot of places you can fulfill your purpose. And uh, it can be being a really good mom or dad. Yeah. Um, it can be athletics. You know, yeah. uh, 
we that our job is to find out our purpose and bring it into being and do our best at it, whatever that is. I in in the final years of my company, I only did one training myself per year. I mean, in the early days, I did everything right, but mm-hmm. you know, we had we had very talented trainers, and uh, I'm in Aspen skiing, yeah. <laughs> you know, and hide, having fun, yeah. uh, and raising kids. But once a year, I did a training for our executive clients, people that had already been through our core curriculum, and the pro- the program was about was about legacy. What are you leaving behind? And part of that program, well, it was based around a book. Uh, actually, a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, was operating the largest publisher of Jewish thought in the world. It was called Jewish Lights Publishing, which he sold last year, finally. Uh, but he had sent me this book called Ethical Wills and How to Prepare Them. So it's kind of a manual. Yeah. But it it's when I learned that in the Jewish faith, uh, many Jews do two different wills. One is the typical one, financial. Okay. You know, here's what to do with my assets, here's yeah. what to do with my mementos, yeah. my, all of that. But the other one is about your legacy, mm-hmm. your values, what you have learned living this life. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. called an yeah. ethical will, the ethics. Oh. That, that I've okay. learned right. that, that work. So that's what the training was based on. And one evening of that training, we did a handout, a piece of paper. And it was a story called The Dancing Toll Taker. This is back, you know, today we go through these toll booths, most of us, it's electronic. Yeah. You know, some sticker on your windshield mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. But at that time, of course, there was somebody standing in a booth. Yeah. And I was living in, uh, at one time, I was living in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. So in order to go in the city, you go across the famous Golden Gate Bridge. But it, it's, a, it's a bottleneck. It's a, it's a horrible thing for commuters. Mm. And in the morning, they have to wait many minutes to get through the, the gate. The gate. And uh, what the story points out is that there were like 10 gates that you could go through and pay. And when you would come up on those gates, you would find there'd be two or three cars at nine of the gates and 20 cars at one of the gates. Mm. Now, why would somebody wait yeah. Yeah. and wait and wait to yeah. go through a specific gate? Yeah. It, well, it was because this guy, he had the job, oh. he, had, he had a family to support, yeah. he needed a job and he got that job to stand in that booth and, you know, but his dream was to be a professional dancer Mm. so he went to his boss one day and said would it be okay if I put uh you know the old boom box the music player Mm. in my thing and the boss said oh yeah I don't care you know just come to work on time do your job yeah you know so he did that well he practiced his dance moves Mm while he was exchanging the ticket for Tickets, the money. Yeah. And, he, be, and he, was in, he was so excited. Yeah. He was so filled with joy. Yeah. He was so in his flow yeah. Yeah. that people waited to pay him instead of paying somebody else. Whoa. 
because he made their day. Yeah. His joy. I think we all have this obligation to figure out our purpose and live it on this earth and to find ways to produce joy and happiness personally uh, in whatever we're doing, because there's value in every job. Exactly. Uh, and one of the blessings I have in my life and with my book and in many different ways is this opportunity to celebrate the contribution that people make by uh, getting them to wake up to that they matter. You know, I'm, uh, I'm wondering if you can see the well, Maybe I can manipulate this camera. Okay. okay. Uh, see my shirt yes. for the day. Yeah, living maybe. a better story. Yeah. Yes. This is uh, for success. We're doing a program for successful people. Okay. And how they can live a, even a better story. Story. And usually it's, usually it's about paying attention to philanthropy, of paying attention to your children, your grandchildren, paying attention to the, your community, mm -hmm. uh, but also being more successful in your work. And uh, so we're doing that, that training actually in uh, two weeks. Uh, the next one is in two weeks. And uh, so we're kind of building a community of people that want to live a better story. story. So that's something I'm excited about. Yeah, and that sounds like it's going to be uh, very interesting and um, inspiring as well. Uh, it, it, it's been a real delight for me. What is your wish for this year? Uh, I'd like to, uh, I want to build uh, that Living a Better Story organization. And uh, what it's aimed at, it's, it's aimed at, at uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists who don't go to church, who don't go to temple, who yeah. don't go to synagogue. Yeah. But they're strong in their faith and they want a way to express that. We're building a tribe of people like that. People that celebrate God in their own way yeah. and who want to really make a difference in the world. So I'm excited about that. This year, I've agreed to become uh, uh, an advisor and a coach to a new Malaysian training company okay. that I think is composed of some really wonderful graduates mm. of our programs, mm. wonderful people. Uh, it's a way for me to give back, to create a second or a third generation yeah. of our work, particularly in Asia. So I'm excited about that. Uh, life is good. Yeah, I like Malaysians. Um, I think they're good people. So far, all the Malaysians I've met, they're sweet people. So I really, really like them a lot, a lot. I don't know about it. Unfortunately, Sheila, the food is very, very good. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that it wasn't what you said, unfortunately. So I was expecting that to come. Then you said very, very good. Well, <laughs> I'll not be surprised, but they're sweet people. And... Um, they kind of brighten your day. I've had a few of them in my workshop. I've had one come on podcast here and it looks like they all seem to be the same. Authentic, sweet. Yes. What you see is what you get, you know? It's a very, it's a very, uh, very gentle culture, yes. Yeah. Very nice. I so I'm that. looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to going to Malaysia in May for a, a big grand opening and kickoff party and a, wow. a training that I'm going to lead. So lots of, lots of things in my life I'm excited about. Well, as we wrap up, what will your final message be to our listeners? 
you know, I have uh, a gift that I give to people that that hear me in person or or in this case via Zoom, uh, and that is it. It's a document that I wrote based on thirty years of experience in this work. Uh, it's called the Eight Principles of Su for Success, and uh, it's available free on my website, extraordinarypeople.com, extraordinarypeople.com. And right on the homepage, you'll see a place to sign up for it. You'll also receive a weekly email from me called an Extraordinary Minute. This is timeless wisdom from other people that I just make a comment on, but it's designed to be read in one minute or less. Okay. So it's not an interruption to these yeah. busy, busy lives. And it gives people a way to stay in touch with me. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I've, any success that I've had is based on relationships, yeah. on, on trust, on friendship. Uh, if we do or don't do business together, that's not important to me. What's important is that we have a relationship, that yeah. we're in communication. And that gives me a chance to stay in communication with people. Uh, I answer all of my emails. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and all that stuff. But uh, that's my that's part of my goal in terms of the rest of my life is to contribute uh, what it is that I know and my experiences and whatever whatever talents I have to have them make a difference in the world. So reach out, connect, sure. uh, buy my book. I'm, I, I figured out that after all these experience in life I'm really just a book salesman but uh, <laughs> but people seem to like the book and I, I like that so yeah. Yeah. and it's available on Kindle and you know on Amazon or Amazon. on my website if you want a signed copy use my website so great great um, this has been one of the brilliant interviews I've had since I started one of them is one of them. And I'm so excited we're able to have this conversation, not just because we've just done it, but personally, I've taken clues from everything you said, great advice, lessons from it. So I'd like to say a massive thank you, Robert, for coming on podcast with Sheila today. You're welcome. I, when I heard about your contribution to female entrepreneurs, yeah. I, I knew that I would have a great conversation with you. And we have. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank All you. the best. Thank you. Thank you. If you've been listening in, this is season two, episode 43 of our podcast series, where we've been bringing your way seasoned guests with inspiring real life stories to share with us. Do not miss out on all these lovely experiences. Subscribe and be notified when a new episode is released. We have a video presentation of this episode on our YouTube channel. Just search for podcast with Sheila on YouTube and you'll find us. Our prayer for you this year is that the Lord will be the lifter up of your head. Until we meet again, have a great day.